0: Please turn back uh, with me to to Thessalonians chapter 1. Do you know the roads that you are on? Do you know the trajectory of the path that your life is taking? I don't mean that in the abstract sense. It's not a question of of what you'll be doing in 10 years or, or where you'll be doing it but it's a a question of what will characterise that road. Will the road be smooth, like freshly laid concrete, plain sailing through life, little discomfort, a life characterised by by luxury, prosperity, ease? (coughs) Or will the road be bumpy, like an untended country road full of bumps and cracks, A road that twists and turns and encounters potholes at every blind corner. Let me take you back to the summer, July 2019, and in particular to the scene of the Cricket World Cup in England and Wales. It was a marvellous and thoroughly entertaining competition, yes I know I'm talking about cricket, but, but bear with me, that culminated in a pulsating final between England and New Zealand at Lords. But amidst all the excitement of the final and the drama, there was a lesser known story of uh, some Indian fans who travelled to see their side play in the competition the mature family, from three-year-old daughter, Eva to 67-year-old grandfather, Achillesh, they drove all the way from Singapore in their seven-seater people carrier on the 20th of May to head to London for the competition. And over 14,000 miles, 17 different countries, two continents, and 48 days later, they arrived in London... To see their beloved India beat Sri Lanka. Three generations of family, all travelling together for seven weeks. Going through snow, hail, desert storms. Having to apply for what, according to Anapan, the driver, felt like a million visas. Not choosing to fly so that the whole family could go. And why? Why go through all the pain and hardship and toil? Well, as Annapam said, all the way we've been thinking we're doing this for the country and crickets. It was for the joy of seeing their country play cricket, so they could stand there all together, hand in hand, voices in harmony, cheering on their country. It was to bask in the experience of watching some of their heroes play the sport they love. And it would have been all worth it as they stood there in Leeds and watched Pandia see them over the line to victory. It would have been oh so sweet. But it wasn't the easy road to get there, was it? Anapam didn't decide to ditch the rest of his family and to fly to avoid the discomfort. No, he, he took the 48 days of travelling the sleepless nights, the painful car arguments, so that they could all enjoy the occasion together. And as we come to 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1 today, the Apostle Paul in his second letter to the church in Thessalonica shows us the road to marvelling, not at a cricket match in Leeds, but at a saviour, at the Lord Jesus Christ, on the final day. He shows us a road not marked with pain free and easy living, but one with strife and challenge, but one that ends with the name of the Lord Jesus Christ being glorified in us and of us in him. And I have two points for you this evening as we as we see this is the road that the church in Thessalonica were on, and it's the same road that we are on and march on in today. So so two points. Um, Point number one, be worthy of boasting. And point number two, no affliction now and relief later. Point number one, be worthy of boasting. Can you imagine a young child finally managing to learn to walk on his own two feet without the help of a parent? And then bam, the child has to walk himself to nursery. Has, has to find a place and, and walk there himself. No sat nav, no compass, no hand to hold. All alone. Can you imagine becoming a Christian, having three Sundays of teaching, encouragement, exhortation from the word, and then the minister's gone. Off he goes. For remember, that is the experience for these Thessalonian Christians. The church was born in the pressure cooker of adversity with angry Jews persecuting the new followers of Christ. Who drove out the very people who helped drive the Thessalonians to the faith. It was by no means, as we've seen over the last few weeks, an easy introduction into the Christian life. Only three weeks of teaching from their minister before being left on their own in a minefield. But it wasn't that Paul didn't care, was it? No, far from it. We've, we've seen in the first letter Paul's um, sincere love and, and genuine affection for them. It screams of how it ached Paul to have departed from them and how he longed to hear how they were doing. So much so that they were willing to send Timothy back to hear how they were doing. And here in 2 Thessalonians, we have the second letter to the same church. And it starts in very similar terms to the first letter. But it has three minor but noteworthy differences. So come with me, get get your nose back into 2 Thessalonians 1. Paul, Silvanus and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. Now notice here, here's the first difference here. Necessary thanksgiving. The first difference is necessary thanksgiving. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul wrote simply of we always thank God for all of you. Whereas here, Paul conveys a sense of duty, of, of, of obligation. He says that they ought always to give thanks to God. But it's not that this language of obligation is, is supposed to be somehow how less warm or genuine than that offered in the first letter. We, we sometimes assume that with obligation comes, comes coldness and a lack of love. Like the obligation for a child to eat all of his vegetables in order for him to have his pudding. But but this is far from that. No, no the obligation adds that such thanksgiving to God is, is fitting and, and proper precisely because we, we owe God such honour that he is worthy of such honour. And do you notice why Paul sees this in an obligatory sense in verse three? Look down with me. They ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right, as it's correct to do so, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Which, which brings us on to our second difference from the first letter. The very characteristics of the Thessalonian church that Paul was thankful for then... Are the things that he is thankful for that they are growing in now? So the second one, the productive have become the progressive. The productive have become the progressive. Do you see that? In the first letter, Paul remembered and gave thanks to the Thessalonians' work of faith, their labour of love and steadfastness of hope. Paul is thankful for the the fact that their faith, love and hope are are productive. For their faith produces work, their their love produces labour and their hope produces steadfastness. It's a wonderful encouragement to Paul, it's the effects of the gospel producing fruits. And it's a prayer of thanks, it's supplemented through, through the rest of the letter. With prayers for growth in these things. In chapter 3 of the first letter. He prayed that the Lord make you increase. And abound in love for one another. And for all. In chapter 4 he encourages them. In their brotherly love for one another. And yet they urge them to do this more and more. And now here in, in the second letter. We see the Thessalonians further growing in these things. Their faith is growing abundantly. The love of every one of you, not just one or two, not a handful, not just for the people it's easy to love, but of every one of you for one another is increasing. And notice to, to the growth and hope implied in verse 4. They boast about the Thessalonians' steadfastness, which is brought about by hope. It's a church of wonderful growth. Not a picture of stagnancy, but of life. Of vitality. It's, it's a description of faith and love that, that I think probably is a little bit different to the way that we often think about these things. We often see faith and love in, in static, in absolute terms. People say, I-, I wish I had your faith. Or we might say, I've, I've lost my faith. Much like you might say, I've, I've lost my car keys. We treat faith like, like a commodity. But-, but faith isn't like that, is it? Be- because faith is a relationship of trust in God. And that like all relationships, is a living, dynamic, growing thing. Jesus implied degrees of faith when he was here in the Aracinti. You have little faith, he says to the disciples on the boats. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith, he says to the centurion. And I I, I think we can do the same with love. We either assume that that we either love somebody or we do not. And if we don't, we, we really can't do anything about it. But that's not true of experience, is it? I'm sure if I were to ask the majority of, of married people here who've been married for a long time about um, how their love has changed for their partner over the years, that, that, that many would describe that one as, as a love that has grown. That, that through time, nurture, care, effort, trial, that the bringing up of children, that that has brought about more respect, more warmth, more love and labour for their partner than before. And the same is true for for church family relationships, isn't it? Time together, prayer together, having, having lunch together, sharing burdens and struggles with one another. There are just some ways in which growth and love for one another manifests itself. And the third, the third difference to notice is the emphasis on the active grace of God within them in these verses. So the third one, God's active grace. In 1 Thessalonians, 1:4, 1, the emphasis of Paul seemed to be that faith, love and hope were the evidence of God's election, of the fact that, that God had chosen the Thessalonians. Whereas the implication here is, is is of God's active grace in growing these Christians in the areas of faith, love and hope. And note too that it is God that Paul is thankful for their growth in these areas. Indeed, because of this growth that God is doing, verse four, therefore, as a result of this, they boast about them in the churches of God. It can initially strike us as odd, this, can't it? It looks like Paul is pinning up the Thessalonian church at the top of his church ranking leaderboards, but, but that's unlikely. But part, partly because Paul is isn't afraid to to boast about other churches in his letters. But but I think it, it also seems strange to us because we often think that Thanksgiving and boasting seem seeming incompatible to us. For, for thanksgiving seems to be giving the glory, giving the credit to God, whereas we often see boasting as, as man centred about the church's own achievements. Yet, yet the boasting here is not man centred, is it? Because the boasting here is in the Lord's act of grace in the believer's heart, mind, and actions. And when boasting in the Lord, boasting and and thanking are are really two sides of the same coin, aren't they? I'd imagine those of us here who who upon hearing about Paul's boasting were were somewhat um, at discomfort to to, uh, maybe struggle when it comes to encouraging our fellow brothers and sisters. When we see growth in a fellow believer, we, we feel awkward about saying something. Maybe worried about puffing them up and giving credit to them and, and not to the Lord. Or maybe we think, ah, ah, they'll know they continue to grow in selfless service of others week by week on the welcome team. Or we think, oh, the minister will know that his hard work throughout the week is worth it on a Sunday. Because I know that week by week it's nourishing my very soul. And they probably won't find much encouragement when it comes from someone like me anyway. Or I'm sure someone else will be doing that. But it's such a travesty that when we let our minds think like that and it's an easy trap I fall into myself
1: but there is a way
0: here that, that Paul shows us that encourages the believer whilst not spoiling them. For, for Paul here is, is thanking God for the Thessalonians as he's ought. But he's also going further, isn't he? He's, he's telling them that, that that's what he's doing. It's a way of, of affirming without flattering. A way of encouraging without puffing up. I have the, the joy of knowing lots of you here this evening and, and being part of, of Trinity Church life week by week. And I, I hope as you read this with me and you see this picture of the Thessalonian church, you, you too were encouraged that you thought of examples in, in our own church life where, where you see this kind of growth being played out. But maybe... You're you're here on the fringes this evening. Maybe you look at the the picture of the Thessalonian church and and compare it with yourselves and, and are discouraged. This seems so far from what we're like. Now, whichever it is, I think there's both encouragement and motivation here for us. Because Paul's emphasis is not in the fact that we're perfect in these things, but, but that we're growing. For, for Paul's able to write these things to church, that, that though having problem with idleness, he's still able to boast in them. And why? Well, because he's boasting about the active grace of God in them as they grow in these things, day by day. And too, for us, Sunday by Sunday, as the Lord speaks and shapes and moulds through his words. And do you notice too, the context that this is all happening in verse 4? This growth that they are boasting at is in the context of the Thessalonians' persecutions and in the afflictions that are enduring. The hostility of Acts 17 that this church was born into hasn't gone away, no, far from it. And yet, beautifully, the, their fruit is bearing and increasing and growing in their lives. And this brings us on to our second point for this evening. No affliction now and relief later. No affliction now and relief later. Paul says that he has been boasting to other churches about the Thessalonians' endurance and faith and persecutions.
1: And now he goes on to say
0: that, that such endurance and faith is more than something just to boast about in God. But that it itself is a token of the coming righteous judgment of God. Do, do you see that? Verse 5. This, fruitfulness and suffering... Is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. It's part one of what we'll see is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That first part, fruitfulness and suffering is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Paul 2 gives us the purpose of this here in verse five so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Now the idea that Paul is getting at here is, is less to make worthy in the sense of, of deserving to be in the kingdom of God. We, know, we all know that we're not worthy of that, don't we? But, but it's rather deemed or, or perhaps um, shown to be worthy. And this seems somewhat surprising to us, doesn't it? That, that suffering is, is described in this way. I think that's evident every time we, we cry out, Why me, Lord, in the aches and pains of life. When we feel like we just can't go on any further, it, it can feel like the opposite of God's righteous judgment and suffering. We think surely if God loves me then, then righteous judgment would look like not would look like me not suffering at all it, it would look like pain-free living right now. And this surprises us because the righteous judgment of God flips our understanding. For, for our current experience now is, is not like the one we've been promised later. But, but this pattern, it, it's not something new for the Thessalonians, is it? As we were seeing this morning. Jesus taught that suffering was the unavoidable path to glory, both for himself and his followers. Paul too, as well, insists that that only through many tribulations that we can enter God's kingdom. And that only if we share in Christ's sufferings can we ever share in his glory. Suffering and glory, tribulation and the kingdom are inseparable in their eyes. And these are very stark ideas, aren't they? They come with real bite and punch. But I wonder too if they also seem just so far from us. We question, do we really suffer like the Thessalonians did? I don't receive real persecution for my faith. I'm not getting dragged out of my house for the gospel. Am I really following Christ? My friends, we need to be careful here. Suffering and persecution for the faith doesn't necessarily look like just being hurled abuse at by those who don't follow Christ. And we aren't supposed to be pursuers of suffering for the sake of suffering. We we don't pursue to be persecuted or attacked. That's not that's not the goal of the Christian. Now the, the persecution to the level that the Thessalonians received may well be the level of persecution that's coming our way in the West. Especially when we see things like, like Franklin Graham's tour um, being cancelled, filling our news feeds. And brothers and sisters, we, we need to be prepared for that and be willing to suffer for Christ in that way. But, but I wonder if if for us, it, it might just look a bit different right now. Maybe it looks like not getting that promotion at work that you feel you deserve because your boss doesn't like the fact that you don't respond to work emails on a Sunday. Or maybe it's the fact that other mums at school don't, don't invite you to things because you won't send your son to football practice in rainbow laces. Just because the suffering isn't as explicit or forceful as we see in Thessalonica, doesn't mean that you need to question whether or not you're following the path of Jesus. But, but do let these words challenge you tonight. If you never find yourself in these kinds of situations if you always find yourself ducking questions about what you believe, about, about what the Bible teaches, if you never speak up for Jesus and the gospel in the staff room when others are slandering Christians, then, then maybe you need to ask yourself, are you really following this suffering, Jesus? How because the purpose of the suffering is, is not merely to suffer for suffering's sake. It's not merely that the suffering is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. But rather the fruits that is being born in that suffering. In the midst of the trials and the aches and the pains. God's purpose is to grow and to shape his children to fit his kingdom. This is a God who is on the Thessalonians and our side, sustaining and sanctifying his people through hardship. He was using their persecutions as a means through which to develop their faith, love and perseverance. By far in contrast to the prejudice, the anger, the the bitterness of those harming them. it's too important for us to note that this suffering is to mould us. For, for it would be easy for the Thessalonians to, to merely harbour bitterness and unhappiness in the midst of their sufferings. To not trust God in the midst of their sufferings and, and not choose to continue loving their brothers and sisters. And so easy for, for us to do the same. To be rejected by the other mums for what we believe. And to respond in bitterness and gossip to others. To not get that job for not replying to emails. And spend your days envious of the person who did get the job instead. No friends, we we must seek to continue, by God's grace, killing these sinful attitudes to... And it brings us on to, to the second way of the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. To God's judgment on the afflictor. God's judgment on the afflictor. It's a particularly striking few verses from, the, from Paul to the Thessalonians here, isn't it? He, he lays before us here two very contrasting fortunes. And he further shows us the pattern of what seems an upside-down world for the Christian. For the pattern that Paul shows us here is that afflicting now leads to affliction later. And affliction now leads to relief later. Afflicting now leads to affliction later. And affliction now leads to relief later. Do you see that in verse 6 and 7? God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, he is going to inflict vengeance on them. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the Lord. And from the glory of his might. These verses may be a real struggle for some of us this evening. And I, and I think that that's in part because we don't see others afflicting us as, as bad as it, as it really is. But do you notice where, where the real um, focus, where the real reasons for the punishment is? For verse 8, they do not know God, and they do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And do you remember what it was on the road to Damascus? Jesus said to Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus saw his union with believers so tightly that those who persecute his believers are persecuting him so the afflictors aren't without excuse, are they? The eternal destruction is just as Paul writes in verse 6. And I think deeply at the root of our society and understanding we get this, don't we? This, this need for justice. A few weeks ago, GP Manish Shah was jailed for Three life sentences for for 90 sexual assaults on his patients. Justice was done, wasn't it? But, but oh, can you imagine the uproar if such a man was allowed to walk free from the courts, no penalty given, and head straight back into the GP practice? It would be a scandal, wouldn't it? How much more unjust then to reject the God of the universe, the creator of all things, and to sweep such rejection of him under the (coughs) carpets. So so then what, what does this mean for the believer now? Are we to look at individuals who are persecuting us now, Longing for them to receive the judgment for their affliction of us. No, no, brothers and sisters, we must not be vindictive about those who hurt us, but, but rather we're called to love our enemy and long for God's saving grace to be lavished upon them. For, for notice, this judgment for them is verse 7 on the day that the Lord comes. It's not for our judgment now. And to remember, it is God's judgment. Which will not fail. Irrespective of of our knowledge or or our wishes. And so we can entrust that with him. But for those who, who do not know the Lord Jesus for themselves tonight. For those who haven't trusted in Jesus and obeyed his gospel and his power to take the judgment we deserve in our place. Heed this warning for two Thessalonians shows that there is no excuse and that though the Lord Jesus is hidden now, he will be revealed from heaven And you will then be separated from his presence of light and life forever. But for those of us who are in Christ this evening, friends, see the joy of where God's righteous judgment brings. See where this fruitful road of suffering leads to. Verse 10, when he comes on that day... To be glorified in his saints. And to be marveled at among all who believes. Because our testimony to you is believed. Do you see the beauty of this? Fruitful suffering now. Leads to marveling at the Lord Jesus later. When the Lord comes on that day. He will be glorified. Not only in personal outcomes shining like at the transfiguration but in his saints in the Thessalonians in us, in you as Jesus is revealed his people will give him the glory and the honour that he deserves because of the execution of his judgement on that day and what will we be doing? we'll be marvelling We will be admiring, honouring and delighting in the Lord Jesus. And it will be wonderful. The glory of that day will far surpass anything that we've experienced now. Any idea of something we could behold. And we'll be lost in amazement. And do you notice what Paul's response to this day of marvelling that is coming is? He prays for them to this end, verse 11. Not because he doubts the future of God's people. No, that, that is secure. But rather that the prospect of that final transformation is the incentive to holiness now. And so he prays that God would be continuing to narrow the gap between what we were when we were called To what we should be. And what we shall be on that day. And to he prays that God would fulfill. Both the Thessalonians resolve for good. And every work of faith. So that they show themselves in good deeds. And yet greater still. The purpose of all of this. So that the name of our Lord Jesus. May be glorified in you. And you in him. What a breathtaking concept. And this is the road to marvelling. Fruit in suffering now. Affliction now means relief later. And marvelling when he's revealed. Amen.